this morning's text comes from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Uh, please hear these words. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In his classic children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, he describes this time in the, the fictional realm of, of Narnia where the, the good king Aslan has been gone for over 100 years, and in his absence, evil begins to flourish. There's this evil reign of this wicked white uh, witch, and she's sending the entire world of Narnia into this uh, endless winter. And the people of Narnia, they, they increasingly long for their king to return, for Aslan to come back, for Aslan to make all things right. And at long last, the, the book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, describes this time where they begin to hear rumblings far off that Aslan has returned, and as the book describes it, Aslan is on the move. And sure enough, Aslan has returned. He, he comes to deliver his people. He comes to, dis, to restore God's kingdom. He comes to, to make all things right for God's people. And so it is at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Last week, we looked at the, the beginning of this gospel, and we, we remember that, that God has been seemingly silent for four centuries and then all of a sudden, there's this prophet who appears in the wilderness. His name is John, and he begins to call people to repentance. He says that they are called to, to prepare because their king is coming. And sure enough, Mark begins his gospel by making it clear to us that God is on the move. And here in the first few verses of his prologue, in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Mark uh, quotes the Old Testament in such a way that proves to us or shows us that God is coming, and he's coming through his son, Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be introduced to that Jesus at his baptism. Mark chapter 1 reminds us that God is, is coming, that God is on the move, but we should beware, just in case when God returns, that we are not counted among his people, that we do not receive deliverance, but instead that we receive judgment at his return. And so here this morning, verses 9 through 11, a very short text reminds us that God is on the move, and it shows us that God is on the move through Jesus. Now, this is a text where we are introduced to Jesus, but more important than that, Mark makes some very startling powerful claims about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has come to earth in order to do. In a way that no one could ever imagine, God has a plan to deliver his people, but that will come at great cost to himself. In the Gospel of John, a very famous text that you're likely familiar with, John the Baptist recounts Jesus' baptism. He looks back on Jesus' baptism after he's baptized Jesus, and he says to anyone who would hear him, he says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Mark's message here in these three verses is extremely similar. It's very similar to what John says. When John says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Mark is saying, behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
In fact, that's really how you could sum up the message, the the declaration of Jesus' baptism. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we look at this text, we're going to see over and over that Mark is making some extremely powerful claims, actually some astonishing claims about who Jesus is, about the work that Jesus has come to accomplish, and the way that he plans to accomplish that work. Mark is making it clear, God is on the move. God is at work. God is ready to deliver his people. And if you were looking for more information about John the Baptist, you're gonna have to go look elsewhere because Mark is focused on Jesus. He's focused on the coming king. The king has come, behold, the son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this morning, as we look at these few verses, as we look at Jesus' baptism, I want us to consider this declaration of of who Jesus is and and what Jesus has come to do by looking at it in three parts. First, I want to just consider Jesus' mission. What is Jesus sent to earth to do? Second, I want us to consider his identity. Who exactly is Jesus? Mark has already made some claims about that, but who specifically is Jesus? What can we learn about him from these verses? And then finally, I want us to consider, does Mark tell us any Give us any insight in how Jesus will accomplish the mission that he is sent on. So let's pray once more as we approach God's word. Please pray with me. God, uh, we, we confess that, that you alone know the amount of distraction that haunts us right now. As we gather to hear from your word, we know that we are we can be distracted, that, that we can have so many things on our minds. We can think, be thinking of the weather or thinking of all the, the things that we have to do before work begins or, or on and on and on. And so, God, we ask this morning that through your spirit, you would calm our thoughts, you would calm our minds, that you would help us, even as we see in this text, to behold the Son of God. Help us to rejoice that the Son has come and he has come to take away our sin. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and that you would give us hearts that are able to respond to the incredible good news of this passage this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, as I mentioned, let's consider the mission of Jesus. And we're going to go ahead and look at, uh, again, verse 9. So here, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, last week, we were introduced to John the Baptist, and we saw that John was extremely successful in his ministry, that he, uh, droves and droves of people were coming out to him to be baptized and in preparation for God's return, for this deliverance that God was going to offer to his people. In fact, verse 5, as we saw last week, tells us that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to John. They were going out to the wilderness, and they were being baptized by him. And in verse 9, we see that Jesus makes the exact same pilgrimage. He, he's doing the exact same thing that the droves of Judeans do. They, he travels to the Jordan River in order for him to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, I want you to, for a moment, just picture this scene, that Jesus, he's, he's about 30 at this time, and he travels all the way from Nazareth, this out-of-the-way town, way up north, about five to ten days away from where John is ministering, and he travels alone. And when he arrives at the Jordan River, he is met by crowds, but probably for one of the last times in his life, the crowds are not for him, but instead he remains anonymous. In fact, he gets in line with the rest of those who are getting baptized by John as he gets ready 
for this moment. Jesus's ministry doesn't begin according to the gospel of Mark until a few verses later, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, it's clear from these gospels uh, that that John the Baptist is aware of the significance of this moment. When Jesus comes forward to be baptized, he's aware of the moment. But according to Mark, few else were aware of the significance of this moment. Here at Jesus's baptism, according to the gospel of Mark, we have this very intense, very personal moment between the members of the Trinity, the, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are at work here in this moment. Now, if you read Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and you read it slowly, and you read it carefully, notice, who does it say, sees the heavens torn open? And who is it that says that sees the Spirit descending? It doesn't say the crowds, it says that Jesus alone sees what is taking place. And in the same way, this voice that comes from heaven is not for the crowds, it's in fact for Jesus. So here we see in this moment of Jesus's baptism, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're working together in order to bring about this long-awaited deliverance, this long-promised deliverance for God's people. And so Jesus goes under the waters just like everyone has before him, and yet something extremely different happens when Jesus comes out of the waters. Notice what Mark says in verse 10. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Jesus descends into the water. He comes out of the water. And even as he's blinking the water out of his eyes, he looks up into heaven and he sees the heavens being torn open. He sees them literally being ripped open violently. Now, you may be saying, what exactly is the big deal about this? Well, last week, we looked at this text at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and we saw that Mark actually likes quoting the Old Testament. He quotes two passages from the Old Testament, one from uh, Malachi and one from the book of Isaiah. And the part of uh, Isaiah that he quotes is this long section, Isaiah 40 through 55, And then it continues on until the end of the book where Isaiah is assuring the people of God that God is going to deliver them, that God has not forgotten his people, that God is going to come back in a mighty, mighty way, and he's going to deliver his people, in fact, in the exact same way as God delivered his people from Egypt during the Exodus. And it uses this language of the Exodus to to look forward to a time when God is going to deliver his people again in a powerful way. And so Isaiah is talking about this promise that God is going to return one day and he's going to make everything right one day. And this is the hope that the people of Israel hold on to. They cling to it throughout centuries of misery, centuries of disappointment, centuries of suffering. And it's this promise that Mark last week references when he's talking about Jesus. He says that this promise of a new exodus, this promise of a new deliverance that God is going to return and make everything right, it's about to happen in Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus looking up into heaven and he sees the the heavens being ripped open at his baptism? 
At the end of Isaiah, after Isaiah has made this uh, declaration of this coming deliverance, he begins to lament the, the sin and the unrighteousness of God's people, and he actually begins to pray that God would quickly come, that, that God would come and deliver his people from their sins, that God would actually fulfill his promises. And so in Isaiah 64, he is crying out to God that God would come and he would deliver his people from their sins. And he says this at the beginning of Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah is looking back to the promise that God has made that he's going to deliver his people in a great and mighty way, and he prays that God would rip apart the heavens, that God would rip apart the heavens, he would come down to earth in the exact same way that he did at Mount Sinai during the Exodus, that the, the mountains would quake at his presence. Isaiah prays that God would come down and he would restore his kingdom. And here, at Jesus' baptism, at this moment when he comes out of the water, he looks up into the heavens and he sees the heavens ripped apart and God coming down, God the Spirit coming down as a dove. Mark here at Jesus' baptism, gives us a little glimpse of what Jesus' mission is. It is not to create a new government. It is not to usher in a new nation. It is not to rid his people's lives of hardship. Here at Jesus' baptism, we see that Jesus has come to deliver his people from sin. In fact, Jesus' baptism makes a declaration, it makes a statement about what God believes is the biggest, most serious problem facing you today. If you were to, to take some time and to reflect on what is the greatest need that you feel on a daily basis, what is the, the most serious problem that you face on a daily basis? Some of you might say it's just getting out of bed on time. The not hitting the snooze button is my most serious problem on a daily basis. For others of us, that we, we might be a little more serious. We might say it's our money. If we had just a little bit more money to cover our expenses, if we had a, just a little bit more, then we wouldn't be so anxious at the end of every month wondering if we're going to have enough to cover our bills. If we had just a little bit of cushion, if we could just help our children have the exact same opportunities as those who live around them, then life would be good. In fact, that's our greatest need, is what some of us would say. For the others of us, it might be peace in our relationships. We might say that if we could just be surrounded by people who think like we do, who we never have to disagree with, if we actually had relationships in the first place, or if we could get along with our children, or if we could get along with our parents, or if we could get along with our spouse, or our coworkers, or on and on and on, if we had those, that peace in those relationships, then things would be good. In fact, that's our greatest need. I don't know what many of us would say our greatest need is, but here at Jesus's baptism, God makes a declaration of what our greatest need is, and it's for something to be done with our sin. The weight, the gravity that God gives to our sin, to our rebellion, to the things that we may not think is that big of a deal. That God rips the heavens open and comes down to deal with sin. Do you see your sin in the same light that God does? God sees sin as such an issue that he rips the heavens open to address it once and for all in his son Jesus. 
And so here in verse 10, we catch a glimpse of Jesus' mission, but that's not all we see. Jesus doesn't just vaguely deal with sin. God rips the heavens down, and what does the Spirit do? Verse 10 tells us. Let's read it again. And when he came out, up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. The Spirit comes from heaven, rests on Jesus like a dove. Now think back to the Old Testament. What does this imagery of a, a dove resting above someone, what, is, what does this bring to mind? Possibly you think of the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, at the beginning of God's creation, we have this image of the Spirit of God, and he's hovering over God's unformed creation like a bird fluttering its wings over a flower. Right before this great act of creation at the beginning of the Bible, God's Spirit is there, and he is preparing to act. That Something is about to happen, and so it is here too. The Spirit of God hovers over Jesus like a bird. And he's about to do this second great act of creation through the deliverance that Jesus is about to give his people, that Jesus is going to accomplish for his, we, his people. Last week, we saw that Jesus is going to give people deliverance. And here, we are given a glimpse at what this deliverance is going to be like. Jesus delivers his people from, his, from their sin. Yes, absolutely. That's the, the primary reason why Jesus comes. But... In doing so, he doesn't just leave them neutral. He actually brings them in to a new creation. It seems as though we quote Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, every few weeks here at Crosswinds, and that's for good reason. Genesis tells us, and it's so important for us, understanding the whole of the Bible. Genesis 1 tells us that God creates everything good and that humanity is actually created by God to rule alongside God over all of creation. But in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve are not content with ruling alongside God. They actually want to rule over God instead. And so they rebel against him. Sin creeps into God's creation, destroys God's creation. But immediately after this rebellion, God gives a promise to Adam and Eve. And he gives a promise to all of humanity that one day he's going to fix this. One day he's going to make everything right. And he's cursing the serpent, the one who led them astray. He says this. He, he speaks of this judgment that's coming for the serpent and yet this restoration that is coming for humanity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, is the mission of Jesus according to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It's this. Jesus doesn't come just to save you from sin. He also promises you a new creation. Jesus promises you a new creation. He promises to restore all things. And that starts right now by recreating you. Even when you don't feel like it, God has recreated you if you are a Christian. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. For our sake, he made him to be, no, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right now, you can have new life. You can have a foretaste of what is to come because of Jesus. 
the anxiety that comes from not having enough money to pay your bills, the frustration, the insecurity that comes from not being able to provide a lifestyle for your family like those that are around you, the turmoil that is within you that comes from broken or hard relationships, all of that, Jesus says you can rest now because he's going to take care of that in the age to come. Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water without pay, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The new creation may seem like it is a long way off when you look at the world around us. But Jesus promises us that it is guaranteed and it's all starting here in the baptism of Jesus. This declaration of what Jesus has come to accomplish for his people. Jesus doesn't just save you from your sin. He loves you too much for that. He, he does so much more. He also promises and guarantees that you will be brought in to a new creation. So that's the mission of Jesus according to this text. Let's look at the identity of Jesus. It's clear that Jesus is someone special. If you've been baptized either as an infant or you were baptized as a believer, I'm, I'm guessing that God did not rip open the heavens when you were baptized. This text makes it clear that Jesus is someone special. He actually has already told us that Jesus is the promised king, that he is the son of God. In fact, Mark opens his book by saying that the Messiah is coming, but more specifically that God himself is coming. So how is the identity of Jesus revealed in his baptism? Let's consider uh, the declaration that comes from heaven in verse 11. It says this, And a voice from heaven came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. When I was in college, my first biblical studies course uh, actually used this text, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, as evidence for why we cannot trust all of the Bible. They, they said, uh, from the, the, their argument was that this text teaches us that Jesus is not the Son of God until God spoke it. In fact, Jesus was clueless. He was just this good guy, and then all of a sudden, he gets baptized, and then God speaks from heaven and says, hey, by the way, you're my son. And the Spirit comes down, rests on him, and then all of a sudden, Jesus becomes divine. It wasn't until now, 30 years later, that Jesus becomes both God and man. And so they said that we are either we are forced to conclude because of this text that either Mark got it wrong that Jesus was not God until this moment or if Mark is is right then Jesus or if church tradition is right rather then Mark gets this wrong, and, and, and there's this moment of, of confusion here, and, and Mark just clearly, he misses the boat. Uh, that dichotomy is, is so lazy. Mark, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's, he's quoting from the Old Testament, just like he's already done before. Psalm 2, I will tell you, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Psalm 2 is this psalm that's written by David. It's written by David for when he is crowned king of Israel. And in the face of all of his opposition from outside and from within, David declares, I am God's chosen king, that God has chosen me, and that as I am ascending to the throne right now, God is saying to me, you are my son. You. He's directing it second person to David. And Mark here is quoting David from Psalm 2. He's quoting this coronation song, this song that people were to sing when the, when the king was crowned. And he's saying that this is referring to Jesus, and he's showing that Jesus is the promised king of Israel that they have so long waited for. But Mark doesn't stop there. He goes beyond this. He says that Jesus is not just God's long-awaited king, as Mark has done already several times. He ties this text from Psalm 2 with another text from the Old Testament to get his point across, and that's found from his favorite book, as we will see, Isaiah. Isaiah 42 describes how God is going to accomplish his mission. He's going to accomplish this deliverance, this restoration. He says that it is my chosen servant who is going to bring it about. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. There at the very beginning, there's this language of, of my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, this idea of being well-pleased in the servant. Mark is revealing here in chapter 1, verse 11, that there's this other piece of, God's, of Jesus' identity here, that he's not just the chosen king, but we have to understand, and this is essential for understanding who Jesus is, Jesus is not only the king, Jesus is also the servant, and what's more, according to Isaiah, Jesus is not just Israel's king. He's not just the, the servant who will bring deliverance for Israel. According to this text from Isaiah 42, he is also the king of the entire earth. He's the one who will bring justice to the entire earth, to all of the nations, until God's reign spreads across the earth to the coastlands. And here we see another key piece of who Jesus is that this text communicates. Jesus is God's servant king. He's not just a king. He's not just a servant. He is both. He is a servant king. As we began our time in the book of Mark, we, we said that one of the questions that the book of Mark asks is, who is Jesus? Another question that this book asks is, what does that mean for me? Here, he is saying that Jesus is God's king, but he is God's king as a servant. And so what does that mean for me today? If we are going to follow in his footsteps, the path of a disciple is the path of service. It is the path of denying oneself. If our king did not see fit to, to see himself as above everyone else and had to be served, but rather instead served everyone, then it is not above us either. It is only when we fully grasp who Jesus truly is, God's chosen servant king, that we can pursue the same life. So we've seen that Jesus' identity is revealed in his baptism, that he is the divine servant king. We've seen that Jesus' mission is on display, that he, he ushers in this new creation by saving people from their sin. Now, we might want to ask, is there any 
clue here. We know from the end of the Gospel of Mark, we know that, that there's this idea of Jesus going to the cross. Is there any hint here at the beginning of the Gospel of how Jesus is going to bring about this new creation? Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read our text again, but I want us to highlight a few, t- uh, few key truths from this text that point us to the cross. In other words, here at Jesus' baptism, what we see is this declaration that he is the king, and he says that that declaration of kingship is inseparable from the cross. We cannot have Jesus as a king unless we have Jesus as a crucified king. So four different ways. Let's consider them briefly. First, in verse 10, we see that the heavens are violently torn open, and God enters into his creation to save his people from sin. Now, later at the end of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, we know later that this idea of salvation comes through the cross. And Mark has that in mind, too. He says in Mark 15 that at Jesus' crucifixion, there was this veil that was torn. But more importantly, it was violently ripped open in the exact same way the heavens were here in Mark chapter 1, Mark 15, 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn into the exact same word from top to bottom. It's the only time it's used in the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 15. If you're not familiar with the significance of this curtain, it symbolized the inseparable gap between God and humanity. It was located in the temple, and it symbolized God's hidden presence from his people. And yet, when Jesus dies on the cross, this veil is violently ripped open. And God is able to dwell with his people again, even as we read from Revelation earlier. Deliverance has finally come, but it only comes through the death of Jesus. That's the first glimpse that we see from this text. Second is found in verse 11. Verse 11, Mark, again, is referring back to Psalm 2. It's the psalm that David reads or recites when he is crowned king. But Psalm 2, if you read the whole psalm, it's not exactly a joyous psalm. Uh, It actually begins by describing the hostility that David faced from the nations that they show towards God's chosen king. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus's life. Jesus's life is one filled with opposition. He's opposed by the Romans. He's opposed by the pagans. He's opposed by the Jewish establishment. And it is this opposition that eventually leads to the cross. Even here at Jesus's baptism, we see that God's chosen king will go forward in hostility. Third, Again, in verse 11, we see that Mark also refers back to Isaiah 42, which we quoted earlier. Isaiah 42 declares that God's servant is going to bring justice to the nations, to the ends of the earth. But this passage in Isaiah 42 also carries with it a hint of suffering. In other words, it's telling us that for God's servant to bring God's kingdom to the ends of the earth, he has to suffer to do it. And finally, Just consider this idea of Jesus getting baptized in the first place. Why is it that sinless Jesus subjects himself to this idea of baptism, to this baptism of repentance? It's because he's foreshadowing his role. Jesus comes as a substitute for us, the one who does not need to repent for those who do need to repent. He's identifying with us as our substitute. The entire notion of Jesus getting baptized is predicated on the fact that Jesus is going to offer himself up to deliver people by taking their place. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, they give us this glimpse 
of Jesus. They give us this glimpse of the Son of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And here in these first few verses of Mark chapter 1, we, we catch a little bit of an idea of what, what Paul says in, in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of God, our great, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." The message of this baptism is simple. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Son of God who takes away my sin. Behold the Son of God who takes away your sin. Behold the Son of God. Now, you may be wondering why exactly I chose the word behold. After all, isn't that word a little bit archaic? This word behold, I think, is the perfect word for us this morning because it meets each and every one of us where we're at, no matter where that place may be. The idea to behold someone is to gaze upon someone, to gaze upon something with awe and wonder. And so no matter where you are this morning, if you are close to God or far from God, this idea of beholding the Son of God is one that, that is relevant for each and every one of us. For the person who is a skeptic or, or does not believe the gospel, this morning's charge to behold the Son is to gaze and marvel upon Jesus, the one who comes to deliver his people, this king of the universe who substitutes himself in our place, who goes to the cross for our sin, that we could joy, enjoy bliss forever in his new creation. For the person who, who struggles with sin or who struggles with complacency in their faith, this charge to behold the Son is to live in awe of the depths of sacrifice that Christ went to for you. It is to gaze in wonder at the plan of God that God weaves throughout the entire Old Testament from the inception of creation until it culminates in Jesus at the cross. And it was done for you. To behold the Son means for the person who is seeking to prove themselves to God to come to grips with your sin and to face the uncomfortable truth that no matter what you do, you are not able to make yourself right with God. You need a Savior. As Isaiah 64 says, you need God to rip apart the heavens and to come down to save you from your sin. If you have any hope for deliverance, it is found in the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. And finally, for those who, who are on a mountaintop of, of hardship, of, of suffering in this life, life seems unbearable because of pain and, and just the difficulties of your life, this charge to behold is a statement of assurance that you are a new creation and that a new creation is coming, that Jesus is taking your sin, he's taking it to the cross, and that is an assurance that you can rest knowing that his new creation will come forevermore. If you're passionately pursuing God, this is something that matters for you too. This idea to, to behold is encapsulated in what Paul writes to Titus. He, he says, we, we've seen the grace of God appear, and now we're going to live in this way. We don't pursue God in order to, to make ourselves right before him, to make him love us. We don't pursue him or righteousness to, to pay him back, but instead we bear fruit 
We live lives of holiness because of the grace that God has and that has appeared in Jesus. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to stand in awe of who you are. As I read this text, I'm just amazed at what Mark is declaring in three short, simple verses. His declaration of who you are, his declaration of how God has been at work from the very beginning. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the glorious, glorious truth that Christ comes to deliver us, and he does so by substituting himself in our place. And this morning, as we approach the communion table, we ask that we would do so with that in mind, just in awe and wonder of who you are and what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.